Well, this certainly uh, has been the shortest commute to a lecture. Uh, so, um, great to be with you. Uh, and um, yes, uh, many fond memories of, of, uh, of uh, my time here. Uh, but today, my assignment is to introduce uh, both students and faculty to uh, the recent literature on uh, four current issues in New Testament studies. Uh, at Dr. Quarles's request and in consultation with him, I've identified four important current issues in the field of New Testament studies, and in what follows, I will survey each of these in order to keep students and faculty abreast of new developments. So in the remainder of my lecture, I'll offer succinct eight to 10 minute summaries of each of the following issues. First, biblical theology. Second, gender issues in biblical manhood and womanhood. Uh, third, Pauline studies. And fourth, New Testament Greek. And then after my presentation, I'll entertain questions uh, as time permits uh, on those four topics. So first, uh, biblical theology. Um, I recently gave a two-part lecture uh, on biblical theology at Midwestern on March 13th and 14th, uh, entitled The Promise and Practice of Biblical Theology, a sort of sequel to my earlier piece, The Present and Future of Biblical Theology. In this lecture, um, I define biblical theology as the theology of the biblical writers themselves, distinguished it from systematic theology, uh, and engaged in two case studies, the letters to Timothy and Titus and the Holy Spirit. I also talked about method and presuppositions in biblical theology, arguing that biblical theology properly approached should be characterized in three ways. First, it should be descriptive over against approaches that blend an interpreter's own theology with that of the original authors. Second, it should be historical and consider a given biblical teaching in its original setting. And third, it should be inductive, that is, sensitive to the terminology and conceptual categories of the biblical writers rather than deductive using abstract categories and classification systems not indigenous to the text. I also set forth four ways in which biblical theology has been conducted in the recent literature, book by book, central themes, single center, and meta-narrative. And in addition, some of you may be familiar with the alternate taxonomy provided by Klink and lock it. I developed these four approaches in the present and future of biblical theology. First, book-by-book -book approaches which study the theology of a given book or corpus of scripture. For example, Mark or John's letters. For example, the volumes on Mark, Luke, Acts, and John's gospel and letters in the biblical theology of the New Testament series. Second, central theme approaches which trace important motifs such as creation, covenant, or Messiah through a testament or the entire Bible. For example, central themes in biblical theology edited by Scott Havemon and Paul House or Graham Goldsworthy's according to plan. Third, single center approaches, which posit one theme that is preeminent above all others. For example, James Hamilton's God's glory and salvation through judgment. And fourth, meta-narrative approaches, which focus on the storyline of scripture. For example, Greg Beale's New Testament biblical theology or T. Desmond Alexander's From Eden to the New Jerusalem. Note that together with Brian Rosner, D. E. Carson, and Graham Goldsworthy, Alexander is also the editor of the standard text, New, Testa uh, New Dictionary of Biblical Theology. When lecturing at MBTS recently, I also sat down with Owen Strand for a student forum where we explored the contribution of biblical theology for preaching and other topics in a Q&A format. Both lectures and the student forum have been posted on the MBTS website as well as my own 
website, biblicalfoundations.org. In my own work on biblical theology, I've also produced studies on biblical manhood and womanhood, God's design for man and woman, co-written with my wife, Joanna Theology and Mission, but more on this below. There are several series underway that attest to the vibrancy of biblical theology in the evangelical world today. I'll briefly discuss five of these series right now. First, the Biblical Theology of the New Testament series, or BTNT for short, which I edit, covers the New Testament in eight volumes. Already published are the volumes on Johanna and Theology uh, by myself. That was uh, the inaugural volume. The Theology of Luke Acts by Daryl Bach. Markan Theology by David Garland. And the Theology of James, Peter, and Jude by Peter Davids. Still in the works are the volumes on Pauline Theology by Douglas Moo. The Theology of Hebrews by George Guthrie. Matthean Theology by Michael Wilkins. And the Theology of Revelation by Scott Duvall. Uh, these are in-depth studies that are all written by scholars who have already written major commentaries on the respective books they cover and thus far have all received excellent reviews. Second, the Biblical Theology for Christian Proclamation Series, or BTCP for short, edited by T. Desmond Alexander, Thomas Schreiner, and myself, will cover both testaments in a projected total of 40 volumes. Uh, the purpose of this series is to provide preachers of God's Word with a thorough thematic discussion of the major themes in a given book or corpus. Typically, preachers who preach through books in an expository fashion only really catch the themes in an organic way as they work through a book. And then, only once they've gotten through a good portion of the book about the value of the BTCPs that a preacher heading into a book can immerse himself in its themes and from the outset highlight those themes as they arise in the preached text. The inaugural volume by Tom Schreiner is on Hebrews. The second volume by myself is on the letters to Timothy and Titus. And the third volume by David Peterson is on Romans. To take my commentary on First and Second Timothy and Titus, for example... The commentary unfolds in three parts. The first takes up standard introductory matters such as authorship, date, audience, and so forth, including an in-depth discussion and defense of Pauline authorship over against those who argue for pseudonymity. The second part consists of a concise standard verse-by-verse -verse or unit-by-unit -unit commentary. The main focus of the volume is part three, which discusses in about 150 pages six major themes in the letters to Timothy and Titus. First, the mission theme. Second, the theme of teaching and related motifs. Third, salvation in conjunction with the coverage of God, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. Fourth, the church, metaphorically depicted as God's household. Fifth, the Christian life with a particular focus on the pursuit of Christian virtues. And sixth, the last days, including a discussion of references to Satan, angels, and demons, the false teachers, and the second coming of Christ. Finally, I discuss the place of the letters to Timothy and Titus within the canon of Scripture and explore the relationship between these letters and the Old Testament and the other Pauline letters. Third series is the New Studies in Biblical Theology series, or NSBT for short, edited by D.A. Carson. That's an ongoing series of contributions on a variety of topics. There are currently 42 volumes in print with more in production. The inaugural volume was by David Peterson on the topic of sanctification, uh, entitled Possessed by God. I contributed two volumes to this series, Salvation to the Ends of the Earth, a Biblical Theology of Mission, currently working on a second edition of this volume, and Father, Son, and Spirit, the Trinity in John's Gospel, co-authored with the systematic theologian Scott Swain. Notable contributions are Stephen Dempster's Dominion and Dynasty, David Powell's Thanksgiving, Craig Blomberg's Neither Poverty Nor Riches, uh, Murray Harris's Slave of Christ, Greg Beale's massive uh, volume on the Temple and the Church's Mission, uh, Timothy uh, Laniac's Shepherds After My Own Heart, 
and Mark Seifert's Christ Our Righteousness. Fourth, the short studies in Biblical Theology series, probably the most recent one, edited by Miles Van Pelt and Dan Ortland, features various short studies, as the title suggests, in around 120 to 150 pages each. The current lineup includes The City of God and the Goal of Creation by T. Desmond Alexander, The Son of God and the New Creation by Graham Goldsworthy, From Chaos to Cosmos by Sidney Gardenas, Work in Our Labor in the Lord by James Hamilton, Marriage and the, Minist- the Mystery of the Gospel by Ray Ortland, the Kingdom of God and the Glory of the Cross by Patrick Schreiner, and Covenant and God's Purpose for the World by Thomas Schreiner. I've been privileged to write the endorsements for T.D. Alexander's volume on the City of God and the Goal of Creation, and I'm particularly fond of that volume. It's an excellent case study of how biblical theology ought to be done. And fifth, finally, the Theology for the People of God series, edited by David Dockery, Nathan Finn, and Christopher Morgan. Uh, may not have heard of it because none of the volumes have been published, but it is a fourth volume. Uh, it is a forthcoming 15-volume series published by B&H Academic. The inaugural volume will be the volume on the Holy Spirit by Greg Allison and Andreas Kostenberger. Each of these volumes will represent the collaboration of a biblical scholar and a systematic theologian. Together, the 15 volumes will cover all the major doctrines of Scripture. The contributors are all Baptists, but the series sums, uh, aims to transcend denominational boundaries and promises to be uh, broadly evangelical in scope. Uh, in the original manuscript, uh, I list all 15 volumes and the uh, contributors. Uh, great list. Um, if you want to see it, you have to um, uh, go to my website where I'm going to post the entire manuscript uh, soon. Uh, so you'll have to take ex- extensive notes. I'm going to, next few days, uh, post all of this. And so for the, for the sake of time, I'm not going to go through each of those 15 volumes. Uh, finally, by way of heads up, Craig Blomberg informs me that he has a New Testament theology coming out this November with Baylor University Press, provisionally entitled, It is Fulfilled, a New Testament Theology, that, quote, uh, and that's from personal correspondence with him, will emphasize the promise fulfillment relationship between the Testaments while follow, focusing on a lot Schneller-like set of broadly chronological chapters, including the historical Jesus in the early church, and highlight the dominant and distinctive themes of each corpus. I could go on talking about biblical theology, but for the sake of time, uh, I'll move on to the second topic, uh, which is gender studies and biblical manhood and womanhood. I'd like to start with a volume on the most important passage in the biblical teaching on women's roles in the church, uh, 1 Timothy 2, 9 through 15, uh, namely book Thomas Schreiner and I co-edited called Women in the Church. The first edition appeared in 1995, the second one in 2005, and the third edition was published just recently in 2016. Uh, the multi-author volume looks at each of the various aspects of the interpretation of 1 Timothy 2, 9 through 15, starting with the Ephesian background by S.M. Baugh. Following chapters cover the rare word authentane uh, to exercise authority by L. Walters, the syntax of 1 Timothy 2.12 by myself, the exegesis and hermeneutics of 1 Timothy 2, 9 to 15 by Tom Schreiner and Robert Yarborough respectively, the translation of 1 Timothy 2.12 by Denny Burke, um, including a discussion of the NIV's rendering of authenteo as to assume authority, it's very controversial, and a panel of women and men discussing relevant issues of the application of 1 Timothy 2, 9-15 in the church today. This continues to be the definitive work on 1 Timothy 2, 9-15. 
In the previous generation, the discussion of men's and women's roles in the home and in the church has often gotten bogged down in polarization between different camps, uh, egalitarians, complementarians, uh, partisan rhetoric, point-by-point polemics, and back-and-forth rebuttals. The debate culminated uh, in Wayne Grudem's uh, Evangelical Feminism and Biblical Truth, an analysis of more than 100 disputed questions truly massive volume. The unfortunate result of the polemics, however, has been that, at least in our experience, that the younger generation has often been turned off. Also, many churches and seminaries, in an effort not to antagonize prospective churchgoers or students, or for other reasons, have chosen not to address this vital topic at all, or only very little. In 2014, my wife and I wrote God's Design for Man and Woman, a study of the biblical teaching on manhood and womanhood from Genesis to Revelation. This was written not primarily for other scholars, but to equip a new generation to understand and live out the biblical teaching. The focus of the book is on the dual pattern of male leadership and male-female partnership, which pervades the scriptures from beginning to end. In the book, we argue that to the extent that a given side unduly neglects either one of these patterns, an imbalance results, whether feminism or patriarchalism. We also developed two courses based on this book on both the college and the seminary levels, which can be accessed through Bible Mesh as well as Biblical Foundations. In surveying the field, there seems to be three or perhaps four types of recent publications. Uh, First group would be further explorations of the biblical teaching on manhood and womanhood along complementarian lines. I would place my wife's and my book on biblical theology here, also Owen Strain's and Gavin Peacock's The Grand Design, 2016. Second, further advocacy of a feminist uh, or egalitarian approach to gender roles. This includes Philip Payne's book, Man and Woman, One in Christ, 2009. See the thorough review by uh, Thomas Schreiner. And more recently, Cynthia Westfall's Paul and Gender, 2016, capably reviewed for books at a glance by uh, my student Sam Ferguson who's right here, Alice uh, Matthews, Generals and the People of God, 2017, and Tara Leach's Emboldened, A Vision for Empowering Women in Ministry, 2018, foreword by Scott McKnight. Often what you find here is an attempt at reinterpreting the key New Testament passages and an appeal to historical cultural background and or broader theological categories such as the kingdom or ecclesiology or mission. Third, uh, a third category is volumes trying to find a via media, a middle uh, ground between complementarianism and egalitarianism. This is epitomized by books such as James DeYoung's Women in Ministry, Neither Egalitarian Nor Complementary, uh, 2010, and more recently Michelle Lee Barnwall's Neither Complementarian Nor Egalitarian, 2016, though she does seem to take essentially a complementarian stance. A fourth category might be multiple views book on the subject. Personally, I'm not a huge fan of this type of genre, as the format often misleadingly suggests that these views are equally viable for Bible-believing Christians, when often, in my view at least, they're not. This is particularly egregious in the case of a volume in the Counterpoints Bible and Theology series edited by Preston Sprinkle uh, called Two Views on Homosexuality, the Bible, and the Church, published in 2016, which features the so-called affirming and the so-called traditional views with two contributors on either side. But oddly, one of the contributors arguing the traditional view is Wesley Hill, who argues for the category of gay Christians who don't try to change their sexual orientation but choose not to act on their homosexual orientation and remain celibate. Hardly a traditional view, as far as 
I can tell. Other relevant entries here include women in ministry, four views, two views on women in ministry, 2005, and Ron Highfield's four views of women uh, and church leadership, 2017. In my view, egalitarianism unduly presupposes feminist ideology and therefore cannot do justice to an inductive or thoroughly intense study of the biblical teaching because wherever a given passage appears to conflict with feminism or egalitarianism, a non-feminist reading is excluded a priori and an attempt is made to reinterpret the passage along egalitarian lines. Also, I'm not convinced that oil and water mix or that there is a way to successfully blend egalitarianism and complementarianism. That said, I agree that labels can be problematic. For example, complementarians affirm male-female equality, in essence, though not role, while egalitarians affirm complementarity, albeit while denying the biblical pattern of male leadership. My wife and I have written a blog post about this, which you can find on my website. So I appreciate the effort of those who set out to explore a via media for their desire to conciliate, if that's what their motivation is. But I think it is impossible to remove the countercultural offense given by the biblical teaching in the area of male-female relationships and roles. A better path, I believe, is to extol the beauty, wisdom, and goodness of God's design for man and woman as taught in Scripture. While still on the topic of gender studies, I should note several books on the issues of homosexuality, sexual orientation, and transgenderism. The standard work here is a little bit older but still very uh, helpful book by Robert Gagnon called The Bible and Homosexual Practice, 2002. While not written primarily from a biblical studies perspective, the work of Rosaria Butterfield is important as well. Um, two books, The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, 2012, and Openness Unhindered, 2015. A very useful recent book comes from Denny Burke and Heath Lambert, Transforming Homosexuality, What the Bible Says About Homosexual Orientation and Change, 2015. Burke also wrote an excellent Jets article on the subject. Another volume on the subject is Preston Sprinkle, People to be Loved, Why Homosexuality is Not Just an Issue, 2015. Also helpful is Mark Yarhouse, Understanding Gender Dysphoria, 2015 as well, an important book but written mostly from a psychologist rather than New Testament scholar's point of view. I should also mention here the 2016 book by Vaughn Roberts, Transgender. Roberts is a conservative evangelical pastor at St. Ebbs, Oxford, and a gifted exegete, though not a professional scholar, who provides here a good and concise treatment of the transgender issue. Finally, I should note Andrew Walker's 2017 book, God in the Transgender Debate, What Does the Bible Actually Say About Gender Identity? Walker does a solid job drawing together an explanation of a complicated issue of the various exegetical issues involved and of sketching a pastoral response. He also wrote a compelling review of a recent pro-transgender volume uh, called Transforming the Bible in the Lives of Transgender Christians by Austin Hartke, 2018, which he calls, quote, an identity politics manifesto in search of theological justification. Uh, sounds harsh, but uh, probably accurate. It's, that, that's from a review on the TGC website. In addition, I've benefited from a series of talks given by John Yates Jr. and Sam Ferguson entitled Being Human, which covers both homosexuality and transgenderism. A concluding example of the intersection between gender studies and New Testament studies is the work of, uh, by Manuel Mendoza uh, entitled When Men Were Not Men, Masculinity and Otherness in the Pastoral Epistles, 2014, which Dylan Thornton calls more, quote, an exercise in creative writing 
than a scholarly investigation, also not too flattering. Uh, he says, quote, the work is entertaining, but there's little to advance the serious exegetical study of the pastorals, which provides me with a perfect sake to my third topic, uh, Pauline studies. So third, Pauline studies. Uh, for some time now, the field of Pauline studies has been dominated by the so-called new perspective on Paul, or MPP. Uh, a term first uh, coined by James Dunn, the NPP was pioneered by E.P. Sanders in his groundbreaking work, Paul and Palestinian Judaism, 1979. Sanders, building on the work of his teacher, W.D. Davies, argued that, contrary to the traditional Reformed understanding, uh, first century Palestinian Judaism was not steeped in legalism, but rather espoused the need for obedience in response to grace, a model he called covenantal gnomism. James Dunn developed Sanders' view along the lines of Jewish badges of covenant, of, of covenant membership, namely Sabbath-keeping, circumcision, and observance of Old Testament food laws, which set the Jews apart from their Gentile neighbors. N.T. Wright, for his part, developed Sanders' views in yet another direction. He explains this at some length in his brilliant book, Paul and His Recent Interpreters, which I've reviewed at some length, actually at great length, for books at a glance. In this book, Wright distances himself rather sharply from both Sanders and Dunn, for whom he reserves some of his most pointed critique. Wright helpfully organizes the book around three identifiable subfields that have developed in Pauline studies of late. Uh, the new perspective, uh, social scientific approaches, and apocalyptic. In his massive volume, Paul and the Faithfulness of God, for which Paul and his recent interpreters was originally desi uh, designed as a prolegomenon, Wright follows Albert Schweitzer, uh, J. Louis Martin, uh, J. Christian Baker, Richard Hayes, and others who emphasize Paul's apocalyptic view of Jesus. Uh, Wright has recently been critiqued by Tom Holland in his work, Tom Wright and the Search for Truth, 2017, as being unduly dependent on Second Temple literature in comparison to the biblical material. Holland has also written Paul and His Colleagues, which is forthcoming, a revised version of his work, Contours of Paul and Theology. A fresh tack has recently been taken by John Barclay in his magisterial volume, Paul and the Gift, ably reviewed by my student Mark Baker uh, at Books at a Glance. In this volume, Barclay discusses the biblical teaching on grace in its ancient context as encompassing as many as six different dimensions. First, superabundance, the extravagant nature of the gift. Second, priority, the fact that the gift was granted prior to any initiative on the part of the recipient. Third, singularity, the fact that giving the gift is the only way in which the giver interacts with the recipient. Fourth, incongruity, the fact that a gift is given regardless of the worthiness of the recipient. Fifth, efficacy, the intent that the gift engenders the, the, the desired response in the recipient. And sixth, non-circularity, the fact that the gift is granted without regard as to the recipient's response. Those of us who thought we understood what the biblical definition of grace is, summed up in the acronym God's Riches at Christ's Expense, were given a lot of additional food for thought by Barclay's historical research as to how grace was conceived within a first century Jewish and Greco-Roman cultural context. Also, Michael Byrd has sought to steer via media, uh, though generally sympathetic to Tom Wright, in several of his works, including an anomalous Jew, 2016. See also the 2017 multi-author volume edited by Bird and Christoph Heilig uh, called God and the Faithfulness of Paul. Very clever. 
Personally, I feel that the new perspective has given a healthy impetus to Pauline studies, though I agree with Tom Holland that scholars with a low view of Scripture have often unduly used the Second Temple literature to sideline the biblical material. For a helpful scrutiny of the new perspective, see the two-volume compilation edited by D. E. Carson and others, Paul and Variegated Nomism, which is still helpful despite being published a decade and a half ago. Also, as can be seen in Wright's Paul and his recent interpreters, it is no longer possible, if it ever was, to speak of the new perspective on Paul because there's a considerable range of views within that perspective, often to the point of sharp contradiction. For this reason, it is much better to speak of James Dunn's version of the new perspective or of Tom Wright's version and so on. Along similar lines, Craig Blomberger remarks in personal correspondence, and I quote, the new perspective continues to be an important issue to talk about, but we're quickly moving beyond it, and students need to be prepared to interact with the range of newer perspectives that Magnus Zetterholm's primer mentioned a decade or so ago. Mark Nanus continues to be a significant player in making Paul too Jewish. See also Pamela Eisenbaum's Paul was not a Christian. And the whole debate about apocalyptic that Douglas Campbell and others have again brought to the fore is a significant issue. Ben Blackwell and John Goodrich's edited volume, Paul and the Apocalyptic Imagination, is an excellent entree to that whole arena. Then there's the emphasis on participationism in Christ's language and even theosis in writers like Michael Gorman, Grant McCaskill, and in Con Campbell's Christianity Today, New Testament book of a year a few years ago on union with Christ. Um, one area that is often neglected in Pauline studies, including debates on a new perspective, is the so-called pastoral epistles, though in my recent BTCP commentary, I argue that letters to Timothy and Titus is a better label. Don't have time here to explain, but uh, please see the introduction to my BTCP volume with an abundance of footnotes interacting with English and German-speaking scholarship. On matters of canon and related issues, see also the writings and blog uh, called Canon Fodder, with one N, uh, by my good friend Michael Kruger, with whom I've co-authored The Heresy of Orthodoxy, which continues to resonate with those interested in the so-called power thesis that early Christianity was doctrinally diverse. This material is now also available as a course package on the TGC website. Michael Kruger also, incidentally, recently published a significant volume on second century Christianity, Christianity at the Crossroads, uh, 2018. Uh, fourth and last, uh, New Testament Greek, little more succinctly. Uh, that's my final heading where I will discuss recent works in New Testament Greek. Uh, on a broader level, Douglas Mangum and Josh Westbury edited a volume uh, called Linguistics and Biblical Exegesis, uh, published in 2017 by Lexham, uh, which in some respects can serve as an update of Cotterell and Turner's Linguistics and Biblical Interpretation some of you might be aware of that, with chapters on linguistic issues in Biblical Greek and on the value of linguistically informed exegesis by Michael Aubrey. In our book, uh, Going Deeper with New Testament Greek, uh, Benjamin Merkel, Robert Plummer, and I devoted an entire chapter to verbal aspect, which I commend to you as an overview of the current state of research in the field. I've also had the privilege of endorsing uh, Constantine Campbell's recent book, Advances in the Study of Greek, 2015, which is a very useful uh, survey of recent scholarship on New Testament Greek and comes highly recommended. So... Uh, I 
I might just say, just go and read uh, Campbell's book uh, if you want to uh, be updated on, on recent advances in the study of, of Greek. Uh, the latest significant work on verbal aspect and related topics is the volume edited by Stephen Rangi and Christopher Fresh, for which I wrote the foreword, The Greek Verb Revisited, 2016. I especially commend to you my friend Nicholas Alice's chapter in this volume, which is similar to a Jets article he and Mark Dubis published. Um, Slightly older but still eminently useful work is Stephen Rangi's Discourse Grammar of the Greek New Testament. And on a more minor note, I just received a copy of John Lee's new book on Greek accents, 2018, no doubt a bestseller in the making. Uh, I should also mention that uh, I saw in social media that there will be apparently a conference here at Southeastern next year on this topic. Not Greek accents, but uh, the verbal aspect and so forth. Uh, before I move on, I'd like to share with you an interesting note I received from Craig Blomberg that relates to the fragmentation in the field of New Testament Greek today. He writes, quote, The linguists think that New Testament scholars, no matter how much they specialize in Hellenistic Greek, simply can't be adequate spokespersons for the field of linguistics because they have not studied phenomena across a broad range of modern as well as ancient languages. The specialists in Hellenistic Greek, in turn, criticize the linguists for imposing meta-theories developed in the study of modern languages onto ancient languages, even though they don't know any of them as well as the New Testament scholars do. And then, Chris Kargunis's major work of not too many years ago, actually 2007 and 2013, rightly protests that neither group is paying enough attention to the way modern Greek functions as a living language and that neither side in the debates over verbal aspect can make their theories work when it comes to the actual spoken language of today. I think Blomberg is right that those with different areas of expertise should listen to and learn from each other. As biblical scholars and non-linguists, we should certainly listen to those working in the field of linguistics who have much to offer to biblical scholarship. In this regard, let me commend to you Stanley Porter's and Houston Ong's excellent essay on Eugene Nida and J.P. Lowe in volume two of a volume Porter co-edited with Sean Adams called Pillars in the History of Biblical Interpretation. Just this past November, I was privileged to moderate a panel at the annual meeting of the ETS in Providence, Rhode Island, on a new Greek New Testament produced at Tyndall House, prepared under the auspices of Dirk Jonkind and Pete Williams. This is a fresh version of the Greek New Testament based on the earliest available manuscripts rather than extensive text-critical speculation. The layout has an interesting look, if you've seen it, in that the editors use ekthesis, that is, ancient paragraph breaks, which often helpfully brings out the structure of a given book that is lost in modern English versions. Finally, I should mention the EGGNT series published by B&H. Be uh, remiss not to, since I'm the editor of it. Uh, this series began with Murray Harris's commentary on Colossians and Philemon several decades ago, and was later commissioned by B&H to cover the entire New Testament in 20 volumes. Initially, Murray served as senior editor. I was asked to join in as, as, as junior editor, if you will, but Murray had to withdraw soon thereafter um, due to uh, his wife's health, and so I became the main editor and uh, asked Robert Yarbrough to join me as co-editor. Nine of the 20 volumes have already been published, almost half, um, with several others in the pipeline. Those published include Matthew, uh, Luke, John, Romans, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians and Philemon's, uh, Philemon, 1 Peter, and James. And those in the pipeline include Mark, Acts, 2 Corinthians, and Hebrews. The series is primarily for pastors and serious Bible students 
familiar with New Testament Greek. It's basically you all. It includes Greek diagrams, homiletical outlines, subject bibliographies, and commentary on significant syntactical and exegetical issues. I've used the volume on 1 Peter in a Greek exegetical class here at Southeastern and have found it to be an excellent resource. Uh, well, it's time to conclude. I hope the above survey of four areas of New Testament study, biblical theology, biblical manhood and womanhood, Pauline studies, and New Testament Greek has given you a helpful roadmap for exploring one or several of these fields or aspect of, aspects of these for yourself. I also have provided you with, uh, as you know, four subject bibliographies, which include bibliographical listings of all the works, unless I missed one or two, uh, I mentioned in my lecture. In addition, I referred to my website, biblicalfoundations.org, and I also mentioned a couple times uh, booksataglance.com for further helpful resources and reviews of many of the resources I discussed. As believers and as Christian scholars, we don't have to be afraid of exploring the scriptures and theology intelligently. We want to know the truth and get to the bottom of a given issue by looking at the key primary source evidence and reading widely in the secondary literature. So I developed in my book, Excellence, the Character of God and the Pursuit of Christian Virtue, scholarly excellence is a wonderful way of glorifying God and of witnessing to unbelieving scholars. In such a God-glorifying pursuit of biblical truth, we're privileged to contribute to the knowledge base accumulated by previous generations of scholars and to engage in the enterprise where faith and reason, the mind and the heart, are working in tandem and where Christian scholarship becomes an avenue for worship of our great creator and faithful covenant-keeping God. Thank you very much.